Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darker Audio Podcast. With me this week is one Jules Standen. He is the founder of the Gear Sluts Forum slash website. Welcome, Jules. Thanks very much. Big fan of your show. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you've had quite the week, I think, because you are in the process of changing your website's name, I believe. Yeah. So the the name Gear Sluts is the the sluts part of it is the is a sort of a, an in-joke, um, uh, self-deprecating joke, um, mm. self-irony, really, about um, people that can't stop buying audio equipment. And uh, there, there might be the same sort of habits in the hi-fi world, but either way, that this sort of um, uh, 18-year-old name, Gear Sluts, um, is, um, is uh, going to be changing soon. Uh, we've decided to change the name because we recognize that it's not uh, not for everyone. And um, so, I mean, uh, we'll be the way, if, if I may, sorry, if I may cut in, like the way I yeah. see it is you're just moving with the times. Like the times yeah. change and people's attitude towards language and words changes. And so yeah. you're moving with those changes, right? Which I think is a fantastic thing. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, there was a, a big uh, change.org petition for us to change the name, which kind of um, set a fire under us to uh, uh, seriously consider uh, the time of changing it, and uh, we certainly did uh, consider it. And so, everyone's on the team is excited about moving forwards. And the 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 sort of off color name has always been a sort of glass ceiling to to mm. um, educators in audio schools that are teaching audio engineering. They like to point their students to to the forum, but with the with that you know sort of lewd word in the name they struggle with that and i imagine some of your listeners are probably like scratching their heads and thinking what the hell is that but to tell you what it is it's a it's a, a forum uh for audio engineers to discuss um audio engineering equipment and mm. re recording techniques so basically your website is focused on what one loosely might refer to as sort of pro audio so more studio work than it is home listening, right? Absolutely. It's, it's predominantly focused on uh, studio work. And your background is in studio work, isn't it? I mean, before you started this forum in the early 2000s, you spent many, I don't want <laughs> to overplay yeah. it, but many, many years um, working in studios. What can you tell us about that? Well, I also uh, uh, cleaned toilets and, and ran to the pub to get beers and also <laughs> made, made a lot of cups of tea on the way. So like mm. um like a photographer's assistant might have to go fetch champagne for um the 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 you know the models or whatever he's taking pictures of the uh, mm. in the studio uh you're expected to pay your dues uh mm. especially in large studio complexes i worked i interned at a um a three studio complex which had three 24 track studios you know in the complex and mm. so um First job was uh, T-Boy. So assistant engineer would come out and give me the order for teas that the session wanted. I'd make them and, and carry them to the door of the studio where I wouldn't cross the threshold. I'd just hand the teas over and I'd go back and make more tea, clean up, clean the toilets, go get sandwiches and things. And um, they figure if you can't get a sandwich order right, um, you're not good enough to progress up the ladder. So, <laughs> um, so I did that traditional apprenticeship and then move through the ranks being a, being an assistant engineer then being an in-house engineer 
um, and then gradually um, you moving to a phase becoming a freelance engineer and mm. and producer. So, being a freelance engineer, um, uh, it's different from being an in-house engineer. And the in-house engineer, you put your jacket on the the hook in the cloakroom of the studio, and and that's fine. But being a freelancer, you you stick it on the back of the chair in front of a mixing desk that maybe you haven't used before and mm. you work with the assistant in the studio and then you then you perhaps learn how to use different mixing desks as you go along and then then you get that sort of comfortable feeling that wherever you go you can cope with the equipment in it and the rooms will have like from you know 250,000 to half a million pounds worth of gear in it and you're the chief operator you know so uh it's a good feeling once you get to the stage where you can you're not phased by equipment in the studio mm. so this was london in the 80s yes right what kind of i mean would we have heard of any of the bands that you've um you've worked with or for or yeah i'm sure we uh, have yeah so i've assisted on mixes for um depeche mode uh, Marianne Faithful, and I've worked on uh, the Smiths' first album. I was the huh. oh wow, I was, yeah, I was the I was the T boy there and and the assistant. So uh, I ended up bringing in some of my guitars, which they used on the records, and became pally with uh, Johnny Marr. We, he'd teach me how to play some old Stones finger picking guitar, and I'd teach him some other Stones tracks that I knew, and he'd politely, you know, accept. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, his stuff was far too complicated for me to know. And, um, they, the, the Smiths sort of became famous during the time I worked with them. So that was kind of fun because, mm. um, they walked in as, as literally as, um, uh, unknowns. And then a couple of months later, I, I was having to, uh, throw the times of London and, and the guardian journalists out of the control room who wanted to desperate to speak to this interesting singer Morrissey, you know? So, mm. so that was a fun time. And, um, so, yeah. I mean, how did you end up? I say end up, it sounds like a, uh, <laughs> a sentence really, doesn't it? But how yeah. did you move from you know, being a studio engineer to somebody who, you know, runs one of the world's biggest, uh, audio engineering forums? Well, I wanted to set up my own studio and at the time there was this transition from analog tape to digital recording using digital audio workstations or DAWs as their uh, abbreviation, DAWs, and mm -hmm. Pro, Tool, Pro Tools was the predominant system there. And um, I was used to tape machines and, and, uh, and so forth. But um, so I, I went online to, to sort of study and research, you know, what gear I should get for my studio. And I kind of fell into the abyss. I, uh, I participated in news groups and I enjoyed sharing, you know, my day with other fellow engineers online, perhaps in LA or New York or Manchester or, you know, um, anywhere across the world. And, uh, it was mm. like a little club, you know, we would, uh, have a long day and then come home and might hop online and start. It's, it wasn't chatting. It wasn't like a chat service. It was more like typing, uh, posts responding to someone's question or comment mm -hmm. and i really i really enjoyed that i like the citizen journalist attitude uh, you know aspect of it and um mm. 
and sort of got buddies online. And then uh, I was gonna I was gonna write down all these tips, you know, of how to you know what gear to get and how to record with digital equipment and stuff. And I I saved things, but I, I never really looked at them again because I kind of remembered them. So people go online in some forms and soak things up like a sponge, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I found it quite useful. So that's how. It was the transition from analog to digital that, that I went online to figure out how other people were doing it. Right. Okay. And so the, the sort of the tip sharing mentality sort of blossomed into a larger forum. In what year did you start? That's right. They had uh, uh, in um, in ninety ninety four. Mm. And uh, ninety ninety four. Yeah. You started doing this in like sharing tips online in '94, but then that's not the year you started your your forum as it is now, right? No, that was in um, um, I think that was in 2002. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, so. I think the secret behind that was that um, I picked um, a sort of a merry band of of uh, comrades that were that weren't grumpy um because people can be kind of can can get a bit grumpy online so i picked some sort of good-natured people that sort of got out of bed the right side most days and um Mm. and the other ingredient that i had was that i would invite uh industry you know platinum producers um um you know that it produced anything from barbara streisand to steely dan to green day to you know, um, uh, just all these top platinum producers of, to Beyonce and everything. And I'd invite them for Q and a sessions. And it used to be, you know, back in the day, if you lived in a big city, you might through a friend of a friend, find someone that maybe had a friend that worked on a David Bowie record and you could maybe buy him a pint in the pub and ask him, you know, how did that go and stuff. But if you're from mm. a small town in Norway, you're never going to meet someone that's, you know, worked on a Bowie record, you know, uh, uh, in your, in your village, but if you're mm. online and they're, they're there and, and you can ask them questions, how did you get the snare sound on, um, on let's dance, uh, and the, uh, and Tony Visconti, the producer replies, uh, telling you exactly how he did it. Um, that's pretty cool. So is it fair to say you sort of cultivated an environment in which users um, learn from experts in their field? Yeah, and from each other. Right. And, and with, a, with, a, with, a, with a sort of, um, with a, a watchful overview on behavior so they didn't um tell each other to bugger off or weren't rude to each other if if they were you'd get suspended for a bit you'd get Mm. infracted so we demand you know civil civil you know conversation sometimes that that we we lose control of that a little bit but um Mm. by and large you can't um you can't be swearing and being uh, telling obscenities to you know uh, profanities at your someone else online so this civil atmosphere um is um is and 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 the special guests helped help fuel the thing and it just took off because there's lots of interest in in recording at home you know from people that have got a um a guitar leaning against their you know uh dressing table and a laptop with 
garage band right the way up to you know people recording a symphony orchestra yeah so was it i mean i guess the rise of your website has really sort of coincided with the the rise of the home producer absolutely it used to be that um the, the tape for recording a band on uh hmm. would would be like 150 pounds and that would just that would just hold three songs so if you wanted mm. to do a lot of songs, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to spend out quite a lot of money. But uh, with digital, all you need is a hard drive and you can, you can do like, you know, seven takes of each song without worrying. And it's, uh, you don't have to have a big room to store the tapes in. Mm. So, so I would imagine that in, in the, let's say in the last 12 months because of the pandemic, I guess there, be, there would be more, even more people looking to sort of record mix master whatever at home you know with a laptop and yeah. instruments right yeah well since lockdown my my stepdaughter that lives you know in my house has um has um c collaborated with people and recorded her own single and now it's up on spotify uh uh yesterday so uh, that's pretty that's progress and that's all from having never done anything like that before so you're right it is um that must mean so the I guess the corollary of that is that the rise of home music recording has really hit, say, professional studios pretty hard. Or is that not the case? That is the case because um, it would be that there'd be a giant mixing console and the joke was that you could um, just put a tarpaulin over it and put a laptop on top of it and, <laughs> you'd, just, and you'd just be using the speakers and the volume knob huh yeah wow okay so but i get but isn't the advantage i mean sorry I, again I don't, yeah. I don't mean to cut across you but i guess my my brain is racing here because you, you know i'm i'm talking to somebody who is is involved in audio but is on the other side of what i perceive to be a bit of a divide between so the audiophile world and the pro audio world we'll come to that in a moment but i guess you know i i see photographs of a lot of, a lot of um, I follow a lot of DJs on Instagram. A lot mm -hmm. of them are based here and you see, you know, shots of their, the rooms that which they make them make music. But one thing I have noticed, they'll have these sort of, <laughs> it's almost like a token effort at room treatment with these little sort of square tiles on the wall, which may do something to reduce reverb a little bit, but it'll do nothing for the biggest problem, which is obviously the lower frequencies. Yeah. But I guess that, you know, since I moved to this city, to Berlin from Australia, and I've, I'm seeing all this stuff like daily in my sort of news feed, I, I think over the last few years, I've become more and more taken by the topic of, you know, how much the room influences the sound of a pair of loudspeakers. I get to speak to more people. But I guess in your world, mm -hmm. that's probably, I don't know whether that's like rule number one. I don't know. I mean, I, I would imagine it's pretty basic, right? So where I'm going with this is like a professional studio will have a treated room and a, a home studio is less likely to be treated. Well, it's a huge topic. So as, mm. as you're discovering it, so are these home studio people. So um, it can be a simple case as like, um, you know, that a, a, a leather couch, you know, um, back for, for where perhaps the singer and someone else can sit singer and mm. manager can sit the leather couch might act as a bass trap and be a fantastic addition to the to the control <laughs> room um mm. and um 
there are room correction uh, softwares, but the mantra on my community is try and get the room right. And I think you're you're in you know there's people in in the hi-fi world that are that are doing that too with bass trapping. Yes, absolutely. Yes, the the message is try and do it passively if you can, and then then use software to sort of ice that cake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but obviously, if you, I mean, most people, sorry, most people can't put, you know, bass traps in the corners and stuff on the walls because it's not a professional environment. It usually is a listing room that has to double as a lounge room. So a, yeah. very often software becomes the only option. Yeah. But sorry. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that, that's, that, that, that's the case. Yeah. And the other thing is that, um, um, amusingly that the, what what I'd call in the in the in the seventies, you'd go to a small recording studio, and you'd see a bunch literally of of cardboard egg boxes on the wall because in in, <laughs> mm-hmm. in the thought that that was good acoustic treatment, and the modern day sort of version of that is foam, and some people make the mistake of completely covering, say, a vocal booth with foam, and. Mm it just sucks the life out of the the, the room. So mm. the, the trick in studios is to have a mixture of, of different surfaces. You'll see posh studios have parquet floors, they'll have glass sliding doors, but then they'll have hessian covered parts of the wall, which behind that might have fiberglass soaking things up and then some weird shapes on the ceiling. So it's a, it's a big uh, mixture of things, including bass traps. Uh, that mm. uh, pro studios have, and and home studios can have those too. So it is a it's a massive getting the room right is a big issue in in uh, my in the pro audio community. Right, I mean it is in in the hi fi world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I it's hard for me to sort of divorce my own experience from what I see online because obviously. If I'm reading more and more about room correction, then I, I could easily just say, well, it's becoming a bigger topic, but it's probably al- always been there. It's probably always been a major concern. Mm-hmm. But I think for, for people starting out, are they either, and I did this, I made this mistake of thinking, well, my room's fine. I don't need to worry about it. And then I learned the hard way mm-hmm. over many years that, that that's never the case. And every room is compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, until you do something about it, or you ignore it completely. I mean, it's, it's entirely up to you. Yeah. But I guess if you're producing music and you're you know making a mix and you don't want it to come out that mix to come out lumpy, I think the word you use is translate, right? Yeah, that's the big word. So, right. So if you want your mix to translate, you you can't have frequency anomalies in your room. Oh, you can, but maybe you're aware of them and know them. See, right. The, the, so this is the thing in my in in the, in the studio industry. There's a term "golden eared," right? Mm-hmm. And "golden eared" um, is a term that, to describe someone that is just bloody talented, you know. And I wouldn't call myself golden eared, but I have friends that are golden eared, you know. And mm. you can have people that, when they're checking their mix, you, you know, in their living room or something, they. They go and stand in a corner, like uh, like almost like they're wearing a dunce hat or something. Like, and <laughs> and they say, "What are you doing?" And he says, "Oh, I'm just checking the bass." And I'm like, "Okay, right." And what it is is they know that listening in that corner, 
uh, will tell them what the bass is going to sound like when they take it out to a car, to someone else's house, but they have to stand in that corner to check it. So mm. you, you, you can have people that can work around these anomalies, but, but really to, to not, to not be coy about your point, the, what you do want is you want it to sound great when you're sitting in what they call the sweet spot. And yes, the that's the thing spot. in the hi-fi world as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, you'd like it to sound nice there and, uh, and not have to move around. And mm. in fact, in, in, um, in, uh, in pro studios with very long mixing desks, really wide mixing desks, like 72 channel, it's, it's, there's an amusing problem for the, for the, for the engineers and the producers, right? Is that say they want to EQ something on the snare drum or a violin or something, and it's down the, it's down the far left. So they'll be EQing that and they'll think, Oh, I, th I think I've done a good job, but to check it, they have to roll their chair back to the middle and listen to see mm. how it is in that middle position. And you can get a funny situation where the producer and the engineer, that they're actually knocking each other's chairs to one side because like, no, get out of the way. No, hang on a second. I need to hear it. And everybody <laughs> wants to be in the sweet spot. So, um, mm. yeah, get, getting the sound right uh, so that you can just sit there um, in one spot is, um, is, is, is an objective. But, but couldn't all of this be sort of sidestepped with headphones? Ah, yes. Um, but headphones have got... They, people definitely do use headphones, and mm. particularly people mixing in an apartment late at night, they'll use headphones. Um, mm. Mastering engineers will use headphones for a, a sort of final check to make sure that they... They, there's a tiny click that they didn't hear or, and so forth. And headphones seem a bit confined for the, you've got that cable, you've got to move around the place. You know, it's not, um, it's not super convenient to be wearing headphones for the whole thing, but there are mm. people that do it. Am I to sort of, I guess, infer from your reaction that headphones are not generally accepted practice in, you know, home studios, uh, professional studios, wherever? Ah, well, professional studios, uh, there will be a set of headphones. Uh, uh, often the, the engineer will bring some with him, again, mm. to just stick on as, as like a double check. But mm. they wouldn't be doing a lot of critical work wearing them. Mm. Um, and headphones, of course, are an important component for people out in the live area. You know, the mm. whole, uh, Abbey Road, the, the, they've got literally a hundred set of headphones on the go. Um, mm. often just one side so that the, the orchestra can hear the sound in the room and just have uh, mm. a headphone on one ear. But, um, so headphones are very important out in the, in, for the musicians when they're, mm. when they're recording, but, um, but they, that's a different breed of headphones. Those headphones are made to, uh, be replaceable if easily replaceable, if they blow up by the, by the studio's own tech department and, mm -hmm. um, so the dri drivers in them aren't very expensive and they're very, they're kind of, you know, rough and ready and robust and they aren't particularly hi-fi and um, right. they're just durable. You can throw them on the floor and <laughs> they'll be all right. See, 
Yeah. The other thing, the, the other big difference I noticed between, say, the hi-fi world and I'll call it the pro audio world. I mean, that may not be the correct term, but I'll call it that for now. Studio um, world. Is studio world. Okay, we'll use the studio. Yeah, studio world is a good example. So you look at the average recording studio, you look at a photograph, and you look at the speakers, and almost always, and I'm, I'm guessing here, but I'm, I think I'm right on this, is almost always they are active loudspeakers or powered loudspeakers, but generally active. And yet in the hi-fi world, I mean, active speakers are becoming more and more popular. I'm a big fan. I love covering uh -huh. active speakers. But uh -huh. there is still some serious pushback because audiophiles like to kind of buy the passive speaker and then choose their amp and then choose their DAC and then whatever, whether they want a digital front end or a vinyl front end. Uh -huh. The way I look at it and the way a lot of people look at it is it's, it's that's like buying a car from three different companies. So you uh -huh. get your chassis from BMW and you get your engine from Toyota and maybe you get your transmission from Ford and then you yep. assemble it and hope it all works. Whereas active speakers, they're, they're, they're made by experts and they're all put together. So they're all copacetically, I guess, arranged and engineered. Yeah. I just, one, I, 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 I still find it baffling as to why there's, there is this sort of perceived difference between studio world and hi-fi world with respect to speakers. I mean, do you know it? Do you know why? Any well, ideas, Jules? <laughs> well, no, I can just tell you some of the problems with, um, with, with studios and, and, um, passive mm. speakers. Um, mm -hmm. so there was a craze that lasted, you know, uh, you know, at least about three decades for these Yamaha NS10s. They're black speakers with white speaker cones. They mm -hmm. were made for the domestic market, but they, they, they sort of faded from that. They were snapped up by, by um, recording engineers for, for working on. Uh, they could withstand a lot of punishment with loud volume. And um, they didn't sound particularly good, but they became a sort of standard to work on, um, um, sort of... Um, on the a meter bridge of a studio of a recording console, you put them up there. So they were near field monitors. And, um, so I had a pair like everyone else did. Mm. And I'd, car I'd carry them around with a, um, with a, I had this New York times, uh, newspaper delivery bag and they'd fit perfectly just in that. And I'd, I'd be on the bus or the tube in London or a taxi or whatever. And then, uh, I'd set them up and then I'd have to plug them into whatever amp the studio had. And so, so that was a bit of a nonsense because, okay, the speakers were standard, but the amp was often different. And the mm. amp would usually be, a, the amp would usually be a quad 404. Um, I'm sure quad have moved hmm. on now from, from the four number, but, um, uh, it would be a quad 404, which I didn't particularly like very much. And then what you'd have to do when you're in the studio is you'd have to play a CD or material that you were familiar with during the first half hour of your setting up to, to familiarize yourself with the sound of your speakers on a different amp in a different room that you've never worked in before. And so right. you might put on, you might put on something like sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel, which has got this killer top end and deep bass. And you, you'd know what that sounds like and you put it on you and you might think, oh my God, you know, okay, the bass is, I can hardly hear any of the bass. I know there's lots of bass there. I can hardly hear any. So you just make a mental note that that would be your new normal in that room. You'd calibrate yourself um, mm. 
to the sound to the sound of of your speakers in that room and and the other thing i can comment about passive speakers in studios which i think is uh, might be quite surprising is that um studios would spend a lot of money on these giant speakers uh, soffit mounted you know mounted in the wall yeah. um and they'd be very pleased with them they'd be absolutely enormous they'd cost a lot they'd have lots of amps in them but freelancers visiting the studio uh would pretty much regard them as a joke because they didn't know them they weren't familiar with the room they brought their own speakers which they knew and when they played it when they played stuff they knew up on the big speakers well it sounded loud but a bit weird first time they'd heard it and um so all that money for the big speakers in the studio and it was probably only the in-house engineers that ever used them and mm. if we if we move forward to this era that you're talking about where self-powered self speakers are, 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 are a big norm now in studios, mm. uh, um, we call them near field or midfield. So they're not mm. massive, they're not up in the wall. Um, the big speakers up in the wall in these studios are regarded as something that you'd play for when the record company comes or for when the manager comes. And typically, that that's not very complimentary because the, the record company is known as being tone deaf and the manager hasn't got a clue about music. So, uh, so the, the, the big speakers and the big passive speakers in recording studios are not used by and large. There's one exception I can think of that I've seen here is at um, Emil Berliner Studios, which is in the same building as Hansa. Mm -hmm. um, they've got some... I don't know which model, but it's a model of Bowers and Wilkins. Yeah, it's it's a high. I know it's a high end model, and I think they've had them for quite some years. But I, I don't necessarily think they're wedded to them. I don't know. I, I can't. I guess I can't speak for them as a studio. But I mm -hmm. did know somebody who knew somebody that worked there, and had a bit of a tour. Um, and that struck me actually. I was like, oh wow, they are they are actually using passive loudspeakers in this studio. Yeah, but the mastering I, studios mastering studios will have a freestanding pair of speakers very often, the BMWs mm. and things like that. But I'm talking about the the big giant things stuck in the walls. Those, mm. Yeah, those, okay. Those don't get used much. So in terms of I guess brands that come up time and again in in the studio world, would that be like PMC, Genelec. I mean, I, I'm, I'm loath for you to list them because if you miss one out, you're, you're going to get people going, I can't believe Jules didn't mention this brand. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. So there's Head, <laughs> Head um, Adam, Eve Audio, mm. Ocal, um, Bayer Dynamic, Neumann. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's funny, isn't it? Because because Adam, Eve, and Head, uh -huh. all sort of they all sort of sprouted from the same source, if you like, right? Uh -huh. um, Berlin with Klaus with Klaus Heinz, yeah, because they're, they're all here. I mean, I know I know Klaus Heinz and his Klaus Heinz and his son Freddie because I visit them every now and again, uh -huh. and they're just down the road and they make terrific stuff. They really do. But it's it's kind of interesting actually because I did borrow a pair and make a video about a pair to see like is there something fundamentally different to an active loudspeaker used in a studio and say an active loudspeaker aimed at the home listening market? And I don't think so. I uh, since I've been um, uh, tuning into your show, I've 
I've I've read I've gone and looked up some of the uh, active speakers that you've reviewed. Um, mm. Is it Bukala? How do you pronounce that? Book- oh, the Bukala is yeah the the big one at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the Danish company. And then there's another that's got the uh, number five hundred in it. Is that them as well, or is that yeah, that's the A five hundred from them. Yeah, I mean, I can tell I can tell you which ones I've done if that helps. I mean, I've yeah. done the, the the key three. I absolutely loved, but I don't uh-huh. have those anymore. The Genelec eight three four one, the ones I still have those. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a little pair of Genelec G twos on my desk. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to, you know, I like to think I'm sort of straddling both worlds a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't hear, I don't kind of listen to these G twos and go, well, I obviously have to recalibrate my brain because I'm listening to a studio type speaker. I mean, to me, right. that's a bit of a nonsense, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So the, the 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 good thing about these active speakers is the uh, uh, is the tweakability uh, around the back of them. Um, yes. And, yes. And, and so I just like to get across to the hi-fi uh, world listeners uh, the 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 fact that if if the recording engineer is sitting and producer sitting there listening to something that is too trebly. Um, their work that they output will sound muffled without they overcom- right because they compensate according to the, the the feedback they're getting from the speakers in real yeah. time right they think everything's yeah. fine and sounds crisp and and, and terrific mm. and stuff and when in fact um what what and it might not be and so mm. uh, the, the way to test that would be of course to play material that they know through the speakers and then adjust at the back to tweak down the treble so that it's like, ah, ah, okay, there it's at a level that uh, it was much too trebly before, and now that's right. And in fact, now it's sounding a little bit bass shy, so I will tweak this pot at the back. I'll get a screwdriver or uh, turn the knob or whatever, or the software, and mm. uh, I'll, I'll get the bass up, and ah, uh, yeah, that's where I can hear Tony Levin's bass on Sledgehammer is like, you know, okay, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the level I, that's the level I'm used to, and then and then they'll be working in a sort of accurate ballpark for them, you know, uh, but it can be a uh, that, that that's that's very handy with active with these active speakers because if you have passive speakers and an amp, the amp doesn't have tone controls on it, and neither does normally. I wouldn't think. Some uh, do. I mean, they, mm-hmm. it was out, it was sort of very much a, a, a no no for many years as the purist thinking sort of took up, took hold took over. Um, oh. You do you do see tone control still on some integrated amps, but it's not it's not a consistent thing that appears. You yeah, know, some do, some don't, and you're right. And there is this sort of reticence to really em- embrace, you know, customization for your own tastes or for the music you're listening to because people. Because the, the the notion of purist thinking is very very appealing, because yeah. you you feel like you're kind of well I'm not touching the music I'm not tampering with it you know it must yeah. be it must remain pure but what you're saying is when engineers move from studio to studio they have to acclimatize to the the new environment and also tweak it so it it meets their idea of what they might think is their usual sort of working level, right? I don't want to say accurate because it's not that, is it? It's there because everybody probably has a different idea of what that is. Mm -hmm. But these guys are, well, you or studio engineers are, Mm -hmm. you each have a different take on, you know, where your 
uh, yeah, your level is. I don't mean like le- volume level. I just mean you know where the treble sits, where the bass sits. You know the Correct. sound. And you, right? and you do it with you do it with a handful, either two or three, or even just one benchmark song or tune mm-hmm. piece of music. So if you're in the classical world, you I, I, I've worked with classical engineers, and they'll be talking about how the 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 cellos don't sound chesty enough and uh, you know i don't i have no idea what they're talking about really but they do <laughs> and and mm. if if uh, i know there's people in the in the hi-fi world that uh, that use uh, piano recordings as a benchmark um because yes, they're they do, yes. super super dynamic and everything like that so imagine imagine you go to uh, a, a a friend's house and you play your favorite piano recording and it sounds oh wow oh that's much too bright oh god yeah. mm-hmm. so what you do is you turn that down and then you might turn up the bass a little bit or play with the mid a little bit and then you listen to your piano recording and you think well that's that's how i know how it should sound uh, um mm. and so forth so so that's what that's what um studio engineers do as they as they move from one studio to another or if you know even in their own home studio they'll They'll make a big effort to make it, you know, just right. Hmm. But obviously, I guess, I mean, tweaking the treble or the bass, I mean, we're talking about minor shifts. We're not talking about radical overhauls. I mean, this is a, this is a conversation I had last week in that you can't, like, you can't, for example, take a Genelec, um and then adjust the settings on the back to make it sound like, I don't know, an NS10. No. Um, I'm, well, I guess what I'm getting at here is that the, we're talking about tweaking at the periphery, right? We're yeah. not talking about a rad- radical overhaul of the speaker's sound, right? Because that's still, it still has its own sort of personality, if you like. Well, it's funny you should say that because, you know, someone somewhere will have uh, uh, designed a software plugin that will emulate other speakers and will put that as a template across your speakers or your headphones. It goes a lot, it happens a lot with headphones. So, um, there is, there is a sort of, uh, speaker emulation, um, trend now, uh, but it, but it pertains to headphones mostly. So someone mm-hmm. that is mixing at home can use a software plugin that will emulate speakers in a car, speakers in a club, speakers in a famous studio and they can switch between these different settings and test their mix to see if their mix will translate in those mm. environment in those virtual environments and um a, f- a friend of mine has a parent uh they're made by slate digital and he uh my friend swears by them and absolutely loves them so um i think i don't think emulating other speakers is going to come to speakers but it's definitely come to headphones. So, yeah. But you yeah, guys, are do. In, you guys are into room correction, right? That's the, that's that's the new thing, isn't it? Well, it's sort of it's coming along quite nicely because Dirac used to be a standalone program, mm-hmm. and they've changed their business model in the last few years in that they're now licensing it to say smart amplifier manufacturers. Mm-hmm. I don't mean smart as in clever, clever. I mean um, amplifiers that have a DSP engine inside. Yep. And so you can take the amp and you connect a microphone to your computer. And then I don't want to explain the, the direct process because it's probably like 
teaching studio engineers how to suck eggs, but um, yeah. it allows you to install Dirac settings inside the amp mm-hmm. so that they can also talk to or play catch on analog sources. So no matter what you feed into the amp, it will be room corrected out for the speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, yeah, there are, I mean, I guess Lingdorf have been doing it for years as well. There's a company in Australia called Dex who've been doing this for years. So I don't want to just concentrate on Dirac. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always been around, but again, it's like hard for me to divorce my own personal interests or developing understanding from say trends among in the industry. I mean, I'm seeing more amps with Dirac built in, but that I don't know whether that really translates into more audio files being into room correction software. I'm not sure. <laughs> I bet that I'm, I bet they are. I'm interested. Huh? So, uh, I've, I've gone over to the sort of hi-fi side a bit now and, um, I'm interested in Dirac and, um, um, I mean, what's not to like, you put a measuring microphone and, uh, run some tones and then it suggests some corrections. And then all you got to do is hear whether it's better or not, you know, so, um, switch it on or off and, and which do you prefer? Yes, if only the conversation ended there. I mean, because you, you're a rational person, Jules, so you're like, well, do I like it or do I do I not like it? Yeah. But you do find people who kind of get angry that it doesn't work for them. Right. And then they'll go online and start raving about how Dirac is shit. Oh, right. And That's- and it in some in some ways I think there's a uh, the psychology of this is it it has made them feel a bit stupid. Hmm. Because they they can't get it to work for them. So rather than, you know, face up the fact that yeah, maybe they didn't go through the process properly, or maybe they don't have a full hand, full handle on the process. They want to rant about it's the manufacturer's fault, it's the software um, developer's fault rather than their own. So I do see a little bit of that. But you know, it's it's funny you mentioned you're taking more of an interest in in the hi-fi world yeah. because I'm I'm actually going in the other <laughs> the direction, which is probably why we're talking today. Because yeah. you know, in in in, re- in recent weeks, I've got this. I've had this RME ADI2 DAC, which I know is very popular amongst certain, you know, a certain studio sector. It is. It is. Right. And I, I think that sort of, that was a crossover product. I know that RME sort of made it more for the audiophile market, but I think it's such an impressive piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would never have really tackled it as a review unless without readers just knocking on my door and going, hey, can you have a look at this? Because I think it's pretty good. They've but, got a um, very good reputation. Right. I mean, this is the first, I know they make a lot of ADCs and things like that. And, you know, to me, they're a little bit like my tech, but probably not so home audio focused. What else are you interested in from the studio world then? Well, I mean, I actually know them sort of vaguely. The guys from Sonarworks in in Riga, in Latvia, Uh you know, their, their software fascinates me. And I've, I've yet to find the time to really, you know, give that a whirl. I also, I think the problem with, you know, room creation software that just runs on a computer is it's only good for digital sources. Mm-hmm. So I haven't yeah. yet, you know, like audio, a lot of audio files want to kind of bring in their turntable into this equation, right? Because otherwise you've got two listing experiences, like room corrected for streaming or CDs and then non-room corrected for your vinyl, which I think is oh. understandably an inferior situation. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so you have to have a, you have to get one of those Dirac hardware things, right? Yeah, I've, I've had a, I've had a play with one of them, and I actually had a professional Dirac guy help me um, because I was, 
I guess as always, I'm always under the pump to get reviews done and finished. And I, you know, if it if it had been just been a product that I'd purchased and was happy to take my time with, I could have taken weeks and weeks and weeks of playing with Dirac. Um, well, I've or, got I've got something to to raise for the hi-fi world that that, that mm-hmm. might be a bit challenging, um, <laughs> and that is, I can tell you now that I now um, um, i just recently turned 60 and mm-hmm. i've had a um a career of time spent in studios working mostly on rock music uh and mm-hmm. i put my hand up for listening to it too loud um as a leisure activity at concerts and even in the studio when you're not supposed to be listening terribly loud and so mm-hmm. i i know that i've got from various tests that i've got some um dips in my upper upper range of hearing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so so i i eq i make sure that i have an eq on on all systems um because i know that i want to restore the the reduced the diminished um high frequency and the diminished mm-hmm. high mid and perhaps add some sub bass that i i know should be there and i, I was used to and so mm. therefore I, I i make use of dsp um uh, corrective eq so i so with with room correction the the i think what the hi-fi world is aiming for is the their holy grail is flat flat response that's what i believe oh well i guess it's it's descending flat isn't it i mean i guess it's it's the yes i guess if you correct it for the uh, the target curve then yes, yeah. it is flat. But yeah, I would say that probably uh, there is a large proportion of people who are aiming for that theoretical ideal. Yes, yes. Right. Now, here's the thing. Here's the question I put to you and your audience, right? Mm. Is that, mm. that if they're um, uh, pushing 60 and and above and mm. or have, I don't know, worked in a maybe they're working in construction where there's lots of noise or mm. or wherever they were and stuff, or perhaps they're saying pardon a lot lately. Um, having a target curve of flat um, might be, might not be ideal. They might need with, you know, to, according to like their hearing test or whatever, they might need a little lift in the, mm. in, in the, um, in the upper mids and so forth. And, it's possible that that might be regarded as an absolute horror because you're 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 moving away from flat but if you think about it you could you could design a curve that would make the playback flat to you with your diminished hearing so there's all these hi-fi people perhaps the people that can afford all the big systems and so forth they might be you know that they might not be in their 20s with mm. with perfect oh, almost i tell you i can tell you the majority of audiophiles they're all almost always men and yep. they're sort of and i'll be generous here they're middle-aged plus right, right. so it's okay. yeah so that's where you get into a bit of hearing loss so mm. so the the thing that excited me about this this room correction uh uh fad um and and uh, new direction was i thought meh because uh, I'd, I'd played around with it a bit in in studios myself, and and I have to tell you, John, that I found it bloody complicated. You know, and staring at the manual, and you know this, 
pink noise coming out and like, oh, I hope it's doing its thing. <laughs> I, I, right. I'm, sure, I'm sure I've done it wrong. And um, so that, that, that was like 20 years ago. And then, um, but when I read target curves can be set, I thought, ah, now you're yes. talking. So I, you know, I, I suspect that quite a lot of hi-fi people at a certain age should consider a target that, that maybe go get a hearing test and then maybe think about well if if the 5k is kind of diminished quite a bit why don't i why don't i have a target curve where where 5k is a bit boosted gently you know i mean this is a very very good point because when i had help from a chap called terry ellis who runs a youtube channel about hi-fi mm -hmm. in london mm -hmm. he's a professional DRAC installer. So he, you know, we did remote um, phone call help on DRAC. Mm -hmm. So once we, we did the, t the, the harm and target curve first, so that these are the sort of the flat curve. Mm -hmm. And then we, he and I was started to talk about different target curves that may be subjectively pleasing to me. Mm -hmm. um, the 90s dance so, music target curve. <laughs> actually, no, we didn't have that, but it was, I wanted, I did want one with a bit of a, a mid-range push just yep. to kind of hear what that might sound like and so i actually liked it and i think i enjoyed it more than the the sort of the harm and flat mm -hmm. but but the thing is where i'm going with this is that what i like about room correction is it gets people used to the idea of dsp mm -hmm. and then once they're across that then they might be open toward, you know, to like, for the example, the RME has a wonderful um, EQ, five band EQ inside for adjusting both the line level output and the headphone level output independently. So I've used that. I mean, I was talking to this techno producer, electronic music producer, John Tahada last week, mm -hmm. because he's got the same pair of headphones as me. And he'd given me his EQ for the RME for those headphones. And I tried it out and I thought his adjustment to 10K was a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. So I guess this, <laughs> the snarky comedian in me wants to say, well, obviously he's just bumped it because his hearing's gone at that frequency. Might but I didn't because it may be just he enjoys having a little bit more zing in the top and I don't. You know, I'm very, I, I would consider myself to be very treble sensitive in yeah. that. Anything that's a little bit too sharp, I it makes me wince. Ah, okay. Right? So I'm kind of like, oh, no, that's just too... So I'm, I'm very sensitive to things that people might refer to as too... I guess bright is a bit of a blunt hammer with which to kind mm -hmm. of knock this word. But you know what I mean? Like, well, I'm, I'm, a, just, I, I'm a trouble yeah. freak, right? So Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I like all the Christmassy top. You know, that's what we call it in the studio. Right. The tinsel. Really, Christmassy. Okay. Christmas, the tinsel. Imagine the tinsel. You know, it's a. Uh, it's yeah. That's a great. I'm going to use that. I love that. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, so we have to use these terms to, you know, like you know, talk to someone to add some more trouble. You add some more tinselly top. You know, and I, mm. like, I like all that. You know, I, if I'm listening to, um, uh, say, a, a Reef Martin producing Scritty Politi or something, and and I, I want to hear all this fantastic work on the hi hats and the percussion and the. And the, all the, the sort of, um, you know, the breathy, ah, you know, in, 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 on the vocals and, and, um, everything. I want to hear all that super clear, you know? Um, mm. and, um, so, so a, a, a boost, um, 
a booster in the, in the treble um, is, uh, is, is suits suits me, and it's what's missing from my hearing. So to go back to purity, right? To go back to to the uh, the audiophile purist wanting to listen back to it exactly as it was in the studio, as the engineer um, listened to it. What if mm. the engineer was uh, in their thirties? And and they're right. Not, so yeah, and they're not how how accurate and exactly like the the studio recording is their hearing going to be listening back to it flat and i i put it to you and them that it it won't be it will you'll you'll be listening to um you'll be listening to a, a flat reproduction of a of a recording with slightly diminished hearing so why not make your system bring back what's diminished. Well, that's right. And I guess at the most basic level, anybody who's got tone controls on their amp or their speakers or whatever can play around with this and not be afraid of it. And if they do like it with a little bit of a, a kick in on the treble um, pot, then mm -hmm. just embrace that. Like, well, 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 I guess. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, if from a studio cap, perspective from my perspective mm. you, what you're really looking for parametric eq here you're not just looking for bass and treble so to, no for sure because because they yeah. they if they fuck with the phase but i'm, I'm i guess yeah. the reason i mentioned that is because i think experience is very important first-hand experience is very important and people should try that first even if they don't like yeah. it it's just try it right yeah Sorry, I cut you off. On, sorry, I, I have to mention this because you mentioned Scritti Politti, right? Yeah. And their late 80s album, Provision, I hated the sound of that record with a passion. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it. I really, it was too too bright, too squeaky. It uh -huh. was just like nails nails on a chalkboard for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought it was a great example of the kind of sound that I don't like. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I just, it's all right. I don't know. Uh -huh. I, I hope you didn't work on that record. I hope I no, haven't offended I, you. No, no, no. no okay, no. good. Uh, I, uh, oh, yeah, that. Um, yeah. So, isn't that interesting? The, 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 it's the, the, you've got the purists in the hi-fi world, and then you've got the, the people in the studio world that are, that are, that are adjusting the listening to, in order to output a good signal, they're mm. they, they're they're scared of listening to a false a false playback. Uh, they flat flat isn't enough for them. They it must be it must be in a certain uh, you know range of frequencies for them to for their output to be you know, to work on different systems. And well, I guess the, because I think audio files are very, not all of them, but many of mm -hmm. them are, are um, they're in pursuit of a very purist ideal is, is basically take the recording and then color it as little as possible before it gets to my ears. Mm -hmm. So every component or cable or whatever should color the sound as little as possible. Yeah. But as we all know, I mean, I think we know that every single component adds some color. 
every mm-hmm. single component, every everything adds color to varying degrees. And I guess what audio, some audio files are trying to do is minimize that color. But I might argue, and I think if I'm picking up what you're putting down, is that some color, i.e., room correction or hearing correction, mm-hmm. would actually be beneficial to the 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 end result, the listening experience. Yeah, it would rev- say say if your your hearing was diminished in the upper frequencies, you for example the mm. scraping sound on violin bows, um, the rosin scrape as the, uh, the violin bow goes mm. across the, the, the string, um, the sort of spit uh, sound on the brass section or saxophones or um, uh, and so forth or the or the or the tinkle of a xylophone. Um, all those, all those sort of the shrill frequencies of a piccolo, or or just the strum of an acoustic guitar would w- might be a little bit dulled, you know. And um, mm. so, if you could if you could adjust the EQ curve to to reveal that back to its true state, then um, mm. that would be a good thing. But I think I'm pushing the point a bit too much. I'm just saying that I EQ all my 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 I have custom EQs for my headphones and and for mm. my speakers, for my speakers using dsp um, yeah because you've got dsp speakers right and again this is a message i'm i guess i'm trying to push a little bit in my on my youtube channel is mm-hmm. that yeah these are things to be embraced because you can get frequency response adjustment without the phase errors of you know passive tone controls because mm-hmm. you the 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 mathematics of DSP corrects for those errors, right? So you can boost the treble or knock it down or whatever. I mean, and I think speakers like the Kef LS50 wireless and the Bucarts and Genelex and the, I mean, the keys is another great example. I mean, you can really go deep into the, into the frequency curve on those and make very um, fine adjustments or large adjustments to really mm-hmm. dial them in to whatever I say, whatever sound you want within the, within the realm of the speaker's capabilities and personality. I have to say that really within mm-hmm. the, within, within its context. But I see, I think all of this is fascinating, but I think it takes a mental shift to be okay with introducing color mm-hmm. or not adhering to this, this um, theoretical ideal of, completely accurate and faithful to the recording. Do you see what I mean? It's, there's a psychological shift that needs to take place. I do. Well, it, it, it's in the recording studio world as well. Um, the, mm. They're uh, very simplistically, like in a nightclub for the PA system, it, there might be a big rack of, of uh, uh, amplifiers and everything to drive a huge sound system in a discotheque. And they'll, mm. they'll very likely be um a gra- well now there's probably dsp but there used to be a graphic eq and these are used in, mm-hmm. in in live settings a lot and um so you'd push on these little sliders it might have 12 12 sliders and you'd push on them and you'd make a curve of the of the treble up and you might dip it down in in some of the mid bass and push up the low bass because everybody wants to be pushed around the dance floor by um you know uh, bass drum and, and <laughs> bass guitar mm-hmm. And, and those graphic EQs across a studio system had kind of a bad reputation. People didn't like them. They, they, they would rather they weren't there. There was, there was, you know, chatter about them introducing unwanted phase 
issues yes. and so a more pure approach to the crossover where where each speaker was doing its own job and, and it didn't need this tone control you know so i can see where the i can see where the worry would would come in for for the for the dsp but um but i can i can definitely see the worry where, that would come in for say passive tone controls and also passively implemented eq or graphic equalizers but i guess where i'm where i think what we're talking about is an evolution of that mm -hmm. in in dsp implementations that do away with these phase errors so they're no longer a concern well i don't know if they completely do away with them but they might they might certainly minimize them, you know, uh, mitigate, mm. I think is the word, maybe. Um, yes, against, yeah. Against them. Um, right, okay. That's interesting. I was always told that they were, you know, almost not there at all. But I could, yeah, you could almost certainly going to be right on that. I mean, yeah. Well, um, can I? Some scientific, <laughs> science, scientific row that could be had about that for about 10 hours. So uh, I, I don't know enough about it. <laughs> Uh, well, neither do I, but I guess this leads me to my next question, and you can completely dodge this if you want to, Jules. It's no mm -hmm. problem, because I, I've got something of my own to add. But yeah. I, I guess what I'm wondering is, because in any sort of online community or online group, or just anybody that has a niche interest like studio audio, or in my case, hi-fi audio, what have, the, what have been the sort of the big sort of trends over the years that you've noticed, and also that some of the controversies as well? The things that really kind of, you know, when when somebody posts about it, you roll your eyes and you go, "Oh, here we go." Okay, uh, one is one is um, high res audio. Um, so um, there are people that believe that the CD, you know, forty four point one k sixteen bit is mm. is all you could ever need, um, and that ninety six k twenty four bit. Uh, they will tell you that you can't hear it, and uh, the, the, right. the human ear can't hear it, and it's um, mm. and it's a complete waste of time. So that is mm. um, like a dog chasing its tail. That argument is um, is um, is one that's continuous and ongoing. Um, mm. The the big revolution in the in the in the studio world is, of course, everything moving over to plugins. So right. you have these plugins that I was saying earlier that emulate speakers in famous studios or speakers in a Jeep or speakers in a car um, and, and um, speakers in a nightclub. And you can just wear your regular, wear some headphones and it will emulate all these things. That's a big revolution. Mm. Um, and there's also microphones that... Uh, that emulate other famous microphones. So you can microphone that's fairly inexpensive can emulate uh, a microphone that maybe Frank Sinatra, you know, uh, sang into, you know, uh, so, so that's uh, the virtual, virtual microphone, the virtual gear, the em emulation gear, the uh, emulating other bits of equipment inexpensively. That's a big, a big revolution. So does that bring out the purists who swear by, you know, like hardware synths and, you yeah. know, original, you know, hardware rather than, yeah. I guess, I guess the synthesis of it on a computer plugin. Yeah. And then everyone's completely jealous of the photograph of uh, their studio filled with all these vintage synths, you know, so, so right. uh, and, and vintage microphones, you know, so 
the 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 big the big the big expression on online in the in the audio world is GAS gear acquisition syndrome and uh right which means <laughs> that basically you know which is the best microphone for this and the answer is well there isn't one best one so you should have them all so mm. to pick from you know for mm. so uh so that's a ongoing thing so in, in the hi-fi world i mean yeah i've only really been involved for 10 years so i can't speak back further than that mm-hmm. but the, 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 i guess there are three that really spring to mind right now um the first one is cds or digital streaming versus vinyl like which is the best format mm-hmm. because it's the, there's the idea that there is an objective best which i, th- I find a bit bit strange mm-hmm. the second one is cables which i'm sure is a bit of a hot topic in your world in that I, I would imagine that most of your, no, I won't say most of your audience, but most studio people would look at audio files and their cables and go, those guys are absolutely fucking idiots, you know, thinking that cables make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still get those people in the audio file world as well. So cables are always super controversial, digital cables even more so. But I guess in the last five years, mm-hmm. the single most divisive topic, one that has bred militant attitudes at both extremes, I might add, is MQA. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> And I, I wanted to ask you, like, does it ever get discussed? Very rarely. It's not, it's not, it may be on the, ma- we've got a, we've got a, on the forum, we have a mastering area where mastering mm. engineers um, and people interested in mastering um, chatter and discuss things. And, um, but MQA doesn't really, it's not a big issue, but and I know it's huge on um, in the hi-fi and streaming, um, you know, yes. discussion platforms and stuff. Yeah, that, that's the yeah. When you, uh, by adding discussion platforms, you're right mm-hmm. because I mean MQA in of itself is not huge in terms of streaming because streaming is dominated by Spotify and Apple Music and companies like that. Mm-hmm. So MQA only really exists on tidal. At, on the hi-fi tier yeah and then uh, i guess you've got uh, the other take on high res which is non-mqa high res which is op- delivered by cobas and deezer and amazon music but mm-hmm. high res in and of itself is still a niche within a niche within a niche even yeah. you know in my world as far as i'm concerned i'm, I'm actually somebody who does it's not that i don't believe high res doesn't necessarily make a difference i just i from for the most part i just don't think it's worth it because Mm -hmm. you've got four or five times the file size Mm -hmm. um it usually costs more money and i'm a big like if you get a good cd playback or a good red book streaming playback it can sound amazing and as you almost certainly well you know not almost certainly definitely definitely know the mastering matters far more so I tend to think the audiophiles, when they're kind of bitching and whinging about high res, does it make a difference or not? Is them they're missing the the bigger conversation, which is mastering quality. Yeah. But I, I wonder whether, I mean, it, the loudness wars is that something that ever gets discussed in your oh, world? Yeah. Is that something? Oh, yeah. right. I should have said I didn't really answer your question very well. I apologize, John. <laughs> no, it's the, okay. The no, loudness. it's fine. Loud loudest words are, are, are a huge topic, absolutely huge topic. Mm. And um, I've actually um, 
shook the hand of and discussed with the the one um, um, person that uh, believes he's um, fully uh, responsible, and that is um, uh, let me just get his name right. Um, I'll tell you, he mastered a, a Run DMC. Um, mm. um, Howie uh, Weinberg. Yes, how, I'm sorry. I'm just uh, just a bit um, um, nervous, so I've forgotten his last name. Howie Weinberg. Yeah. So I've met him several times, and he's told me with 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 the chuckle that he thinks that it's, it's all his fault, and he might be right because if you listen to the Jason Nevins remix of Run DMC. It's like that. Um, mm. it, and it, if you listen to it, actually not if you listen to it, if you look at it as an as a audio wave file, right? Mm. Instead of having a little spiky, like a Christmas tree on its side, it is actually one solid block of audio. He compressed mm. the hell out of it. It's limited. It, it doesn't have any peaks and troughs. It is just mm. loud. It's like a leaf blower. Um, it's relentless from the beginning to the end. Blower, that's great. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, from beginning to the end, it's really loud. And I also know another person, um, uh, John Davis, who is at um, Sony Mastering Studios in uh, Whitfield Street in London, and he's a chum. And uh, he told me that when he was mastering Oasis's um, uh, first records, they had this TC. Uh, m6000 or m500 it was at the time and it was a multi-band mm. compressor mastering tool digital mastering tool mm -hmm. and he was tweaking around on the knobs and wondered kind of what would happen if we just bloody turned the turned everyone up full and just and just mm. and just crush the living hell out of the mix and um mm. with with hardly any dynamics no quiet bits just loud all the time and he he sort of did it for a laugh and the the band loved it the record company loved it and he thought well okay and consequently for the next decade when you go to a pub and uh, having a beer back when you could go to a pub uh and hmm. when oasis came on the 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 jukebox it would practically blow the speakers out it was deafening it was like it was the king of the castle it was the loudest thing out there it sounded wonderful um glorious coming out the speakers and so that that's the loudness wars and unfortunately the record company executives uh that would come down to studios come down to mastering studios would would put pressure on the mastering engineer to reduce the dynamics not have too many quiet spots in the music compress it make it really loud because they wanted to their tracks to compete to sound mm. louder than the others and uh, it's uh, it's a problem loudness wars is a huge problem yeah i mean that oasis yeah what was it what's the story morning glory that mm -hmm. album was one of the first examples that i can think of and then it was i won't say it's all downhill because obviously some records still sounded pretty good so most steve albini records still sounded pretty amazing still still do now mm -hmm. because i think he did the mastering as well on those but I mean, I, I kind of wish the audiophiles would take all the energy that they put into bickering about MQA and or high res mm -hmm. and really direct it at mastering engineers or just or talking about the big problem in front of them, which is the mastering quality, because that has far more of an impact on what all of us hear than does the delivery format. 
So I'd rather have a nicely balanced, dynamic sounding master delivered as MP3 than say that Oasis album in high res, because it's just, what, what's the point? You're just, well, I, 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 I mean, lots of people enjoyed Oasis and, and, and me chum, John Davis that mastered it. You know, I think he, he, he served his artist well. Um, Yes, he did. Yes. Um, and uh, here's the thing, right? I was mastering. So I, I was at a mastering session for an act that I'd been working with, and um, mm-hmm. we'd had a very uh, uphill recording session. They'd been through several producers. I was the person brought in to try and finish the project, and mm-hmm. um, uh, we were we just finished the album. We'd okayed it with the mastering engineer and the uh, record label were there. It was a Warner's uh, A&R man there. And they, and then uh, cabs were called, you know, Ubers or mini cabs back as they were back then were called mm. record label left first artists left. I was lingering around because uh, my cab hadn't turned up and I noticed the mastering engineer. He started to plug in this other piece of equipment, which is called a, uh, a younger or junger, uh, spelt the J, German piece of equipment. And I happened to know that that was a super, it was a limiter uh, to mm-hmm. further compress things. And we'd, we'd, let's not forget, we'd, we'd signed off on the sound of everything, right? We're finished, mm-hmm. right? And he, I caught him patching this thing and I said, what's that? And he said, oh, it just gives me an extra dB or two on the master, right? Mm. That was outrageous, you know. We, the artist was very fussy about sound. This was done behind mm. the artist's back, you know. So, mm. and the mastering engineer did it. He took it on himself to do this covertly behind everyone's back to make hit the output from his studio louder than. Then every, to, to compete with everyone else's, and it was completely unauthorized. So I made a mental note never to work with him again. And um, who does that benefit, Jules? I mean, when he does, if he does something like that, yeah, who who, who benefits from that? Um, well, the mastering engineer thinks that the artist benefits from it mm. um, to have a more com- quote competitive unquote uh, loudness to their album. Mm. And it really was underhand, and it was just an example of the. He must. Can you? He must have felt under pressure to, to you know. How dare you? How dare you? Re, you know, whatever you do at all costs, don't release, you know, dynamic material. Everything has to be crushed. Mm. And this was this was a top flight top flight mastering studio for a major label. It was really, it's too much. Definitely, yeah. I mean, is it not becoming, and I don't know about this, so maybe you can enlighten me on this. Mm-hmm. Is this sort of loudness wars becoming less of an issue because streaming services are normalizing a lot of the content now? Yeah. Normalizing well, the, the, the perceived volume of the content. Yeah, there is something in that, in what you're saying there. And the people that are mastering it are aware that it's going to be played not in people's homes from a CD, but from Spotify. Mm. And yes. uh, so I just recently received some masters from uh, a master, some, a mastering engineer, and there were some notes on it about um, Spotify and, and the normalizing level, exactly what you were talking about. And mm. um, it's still quite confusing. The, the, one of the, 
the roots of the problem for us in the studio is with actually with the musicians because at the end of the night, if we what we used to do is um, burn them a CD. Uh, that's mm. probably not uh, done these days, but probably make them a uh, send them a file. Um, mm. uh, but um, but if your rough mix of your work in progress, it doesn't have any of the mastering, compression, EQ, or anything like that. So what would happen is the art you you'd hand it to the artist and you'd say like whatever you do don't compare this next to a released album because it's not going to be as loud it's gonna it might sound a bit muffled and um Mm. it'll sound a lot quieter right the artist Mm. will grab the cd from you nod at you as if they've been taking in what you're saying right but you could set your watch to it the next day they come in and they say we played it next to this other album and it sounded (laughs) really quiet it wasn't as mm. loud and it sounded a bit muffled. And, and I was like, oh, you know, so what, what happened? This happens in every studio. And so what happens is that studios would have what's called pre-mastering, right? Which is a, uh, a nightmarish um, thing. And, <laughs> and mm. what they do is they'd have a box. I've got one in, in this house called a Finalizer Plus. Um, mm. they'd use one of these boxes that have multi-band compression. It's a bit like the thing used on Oasis or they'd use a plugin. And before the artist left, they would not trust the artist to, to, to understand that it was a work in progress. It was a, a mix off the mixing console. It wasn't mm-hmm. finished and they would, uh, jack it up, uh, and make it compressed and loud. And they'd hand them a file like that. And then when they played it next to, whatever there were other music that was finished, they, 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 they couldn't complain. So hmm. the fault lies with record labels for ones for pressuring mastering engineers to make uh, releases competitively loud. Uh, the fault lies with musicians not being able to sort of comprehend that, that, a, that a rough mix from a studio played next to a released mix isn't, is going to be much quieter and and it's not finished it's going to sound not finished but but and and, th- and that's where it's a sort of a perfect storm for this loudness wars that's that that that's literally in a nutshell how it all happens hmm. everyone's involved so it's so it's an education thing for yeah. all parties concerned so Correct. basically everybody everybody in the chain of command i guess all the way from the artist to the label to yeah. studio engineers has to be made yeah. aware that the the loudness thing is an issue yeah. and until we get to the very finished product we we shouldn't really be having that conversation that's right but you can imagine some sort of um uh crazy crazy movie that had um that had uh, a classroom with a bunch of you know singers and artists in it sat down and mm. someone's saying right do you all understand that the mi- rough mix that the engineer takes that you take home from the engineer is not going to be loud as as a, a commercial release and they mm-hmm. don't shake their heads and go oh, i don't know maybe and it's like well you're not leaving this room until you say you understand <laughs> you know <laughs> and then and then it would be mastering engineers can you can you not sneakily try and jack the volume of this because you're, fr- you're afraid that the output from your business is going to be known as being competitively too quiet. 
and they and they go, okay, well, I'll try. And then you'd say to A and R people, A and R people, um, will you stop pressuring mastering engineers to crank up the volume and crush productions so that they they so that they're competitive against other record labels? Um, audio and they'll go well, well maybe I'll try better and and um, but I don't think that education's really I don't think that's going to happen. Do you think it's improving though? Uh, loudness wars is known as a phenomenon. Um, uh, um, mastering engineers have they're very often maybe they'll offer three different versions mm. and they'll they'll tell you this one is quite crushed this one's medium this one's sort of got a light bit of volume boosting on it and so forth and you know then the artist might pick the first version of the middle version and not go for the super crushed version so so there is an awareness uh by mastering engineers in a way but um it's a difficult one. Uh, people don't want to be uncompetitive. So, but isn't it isn't it part of the creative decision making process as much as choosing a microphone or a guitar or the way you play a certain song or how you mix an album? It's like the last step in the creative chain, right? It is. Um, I'm playing devil's advocate here, by the way. I like. I don't. Yeah. I kind of, sort of, do believe this, but it certainly is. But. but 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 it certainly is. But how about when you've when you've approved everything and called a cab and left, the guy behind your back mm. patches in a, a limiter to make it uh, two dBs louder. Yeah, I mean that sort of sneaky underhand behaviour is not on in in any industry, no matter what it is you're doing. I mean, especially if people have signed off on everything. Yeah, but that's how that's how sort of pernicious or rife the. The, the issue is, um, and if you think about A&R men, they, people, they typically, unless they're the managing director, they, they tend to hop from company to company mm. and they, they want everything competitive. You know, they want to, they're, they're maybe working for small label. They'd like to go and work at Sony. So they want to do the best they can at the small label because they mm. want to get onto Sony and do, you know, get more money, more, more, have more power and, so everyone's trying to climb and build, and uh, so that's where you get this loudness wars. I don't, I, I, I'm sure it doesn't go on in the classical world. I've got a friend that's a classical engineer, and um, he's very um, uh, stickler for for you know quality, and I don't think he'd have much to do with it. The, 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 I know he adds a bit of reverb if the if the hall's a bit dead, if the concert hall's a mm. bit. Um, doesn't have enough reverb he'll he might help it along a little bit uh, but he's he's more into capturing a pure a pure sound i guess that's because there isn't that sort of cutthroat mentality in the classical musical world as much as there is in say pop music or electronic music where you know when a, and when a mix really pops if you like on on radio means basically more income for the for the camp for the record company mm -hmm. that's right i you know i guess Deutsche Grammophon aren't really, you know, looking at what, I don't know, what's the the Berliner Philharmonie, uh, uh -huh. their record label, you know, they're probably not competing against each other because the, well, also because the, the listener is older, probably more discerning, 
um, and isn't caught in that fight of like, oh my God, I can't believe this this Beethoven over here is so quiet compared to this Wagner over here. That, that just mm -hmm. wouldn't <laughs> that wouldn't come up, would it? But no. I guess if you're if you're in the world of Spotify playlists and you know that if you're rec you know, if the sound of your song on that playlist pops loud than the others, it's probably going to be played more often on that playlist. It's just yeah. business, right? Is what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, basically. And and you can also get it wrong. You can you can supply I think you were hinting at it earlier and you're right, that that you can supply something that's too loud. It used to be for radio stations, FM radio stations would all have their compressor. And uh, mm. if you if you if your mix was too loud, it would it would it would clash with the compressor and you and actually your your loud track would come out quieter than everyone else's. So the the whole thing can backfire. Um mm. And um, so the the tip really is for artists to really get involved in mastering and 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 make sure that they they listen very carefully to the before and after with mastering and and um, pass on their comments to the mastering engineer. And many many of the websites that of mastering engineers have long articles to help musicians, um, so mm. it's worth reading those. Yeah. I I think that's a good point, isn't it? Is, you know, encouraging artists to take control of that step, you know, that last step in the chain, because that can fundamentally alter the, well, how their records sound and how it's enjoyed or not. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess, of, see, the thing is, is, so much of this depends upon playback hardware, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got some fairly weak, power, you know, weak sounding in-ear monitors, like a pair of Apple earbuds, I mean, they only go so loud because of the physics of the design of the damn things. Mm -hmm. So I, I do wonder whether songs are now being mastered to compensate for the, the piss weak nature of the hardware in, in the consumer base. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's kind of, um, what's it called? They're sort of targeting the, the, the lowest common denominator. Lowest common you know. denominator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jules, I, I think our work is done here. Yeah, um, uh, we've had a good, good examination. I'd just like to say something about expensive cables. Um, in the mm -hmm. there's one issue within the hi-fi world. Uh, sorry, in the in the studio world with expensive cables. If you had um, a 500 cable that was 500 pound cable that was uh, connected between, say, the studio CD player and and the amp and stuff like that, you might mm -hmm. come in the next day and find it missing. Because oh. someone on the, someone on the session might have taken it, so that's that's one of the considerations of uh, pricey cables. Is uh, it, it, it's if if you're Abbey Road and you have like um, um, you know literally a hundred mic cables, mm. you you're not going to spend uh, three hundred pounds on each one of them because that's an awful lot of money. So yeah, so there's a sort of a uh, 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 um, mass use um, uh, issue with expensive cables in in studios, and there's also a uh, a mild theft risk to super expensive cables in in recording studios because they they have a lot of people coming in and out of them. So mm. some people can be a bit light fingered, sadly. I feel like we've ended on a bit of a bum note, Jules, but I guess that's oh. the way the cookie crumbles. Okay. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> no, no, I mean, really. Feel free to edit no, that out. 
no, no, no. I think it's an interesting story because, uh, you know, it's, it's context for things that maybe people in my audience don't know about. I didn't know about that as being an issue. I just thought that I'd assumed incorrectly that studio people were just, I guess, either more frugal or just didn't see the value in those cables, uh, which is to all, you know, these are legit things, legit reasons mm-hmm. not to spend bigger on cables. But I I had no idea that light-fingered individuals also had to be factored into that. Yeah, and also, also you have, uh, in a studio, you might have like... 50 bits of electronics that need a kettle lead, right? So mm. in a studio, they're all going to be one-pound kettle leads. They're not going to be 500-pound right. power cables because yeah. 50 times 500 is, is, is too much money. There's a lot of money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You know it, and I know it. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's why um, uh, high-end cables aren't um, big in recording studios the, the, for the cost in bulk and for the pocketability of some of them. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Jules, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Pleasure. Well, really great. Uh, I'll, I'll continue listening to your shows and uh, I really like the YouTube channel and your podcast. So thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Jewel Standen from the website formerly known as Gear Sluts. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston, and music came from Ben Pitt. <laughs>